If there's one thing I've learned about the Tudors, it's that Anne Boleyn is by far the most popular of all of the figures from that time in history. So today we take a look at Anne Boleyn. The Tudors Dynasty Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another season of the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. I am your founder and host, Rebecca Larson. And today I am so pleased to share with you an interview that my great friend Melanie Taylor did with the incomparable John Guy and Julia Fox about their new book that talks about Anne Boleyn. You are not going to want to miss this interview because there's so much going on here. And if you are an Anne Boleyn fan, you are going to love this so much. So with that, let's get on with this. Mel, go for it. Hello, I'm Mel Taylor, and today I have the privilege of interviewing the eminent Tudor historians John Guy and Julia Fox about their stunning new book, Hunting the Falcon. Professor Guy received his bachelor degree and PhD from Cambridge University, where he is currently a fellow of Clare College. He's written 16 books, is a regular guest on multiple BBC radio shows, and is a BBC documentary contributor. His biography of Mary Queen of Scots was the inspiration for the 2018 films starring Sayosha Ronan and Margot Robbie. I hope I've got the pronunciation of uh, Miss Ronan's name right. After receiving her degree from the University of London, Julia Fox taught history at various schools throughout London. Julia is the author of two books, Jane Boleyn, The Infamous Lady Rochford, and Sister Queens, Catherine of Aragon and Juana, Queen of Castile. On behalf of Tudor's Dynasty podcast, welcome and many congratulations on a really fabulous book. Thank you. First of all, how did you manage to undertake all that research necessary during the pandemic? <laughs> With French help, is the Excellent. answer to that one, I have to say. Do you want to explain about the archives there? Well, because... well, well we, yes. I mean, my advice to anybody listening is don't sign up for a major book involving six months' work in, in France at the beginning of a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> in fact, actually, um, the, the French archivists were absolutely brilliant. We um, And, of course, we had this slight advantage that their lockdown dates were different to ours, so that we would be in lockdown and we could write to them and they were working, and then they would go into lockdown and then, you know, we would be working. But um, particularly Bibliotheque Nationale, I mean, absolutely yeah. gets the, go, the gold star. They, uh, they digitised everything um, that we asked for um, and to a very high quality within... Well, I mean, we probably started asking uh, uh, at the end of April, maybe the beginning of May, and we got it all, you know, the night before the Grand Depart in France, which was, you know, the 31st of July before they all go south. Um, and then the, um, also, I mean, the diplomatic archives, many of them are still kept in the, they used to be kept in the basement of the um, French Ministry of Foreign Affairs just by the Seine, but they've now moved um, just outside to, to the sort of Paris suburb. But there's right. a dedicated record office there, and they were equally wonderful. They just digitised you know, what they had. And then, of course, um, in one respect, um, the pandemic, I wouldn't say it came to our aid, but it, it, it gave us a different way of, <laughs> you, you find workarounds. Yeah. And... Um, <clears throat> We discovered, which I had never really known about, of course, I had first worked in French archives for Mary Queen of Scots you know, around sort of 2002, 2003. So I sort of knew the ropes um, a fair degree, and I knew there was a lot of stuff in there that British scholars just conventionally ignore. Uh, but, of course, what I wasn't aware of until um, starting to um, you know, find workarounds 
was the extent to which um, 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 French municipal um, and local archives you know, were starting to digitize materials. But in particular, um, the, the vast number of French local historical and local archaeological societies who in the 19th century provided vast information, often with transcripts of royal entries into towns in their area, this sort of thing, events going on locally. And in fact, we were able to build up and that stuff um, has um, now been very extensively digitized and it's uh, available through, again, through the Bibliothèque um, Nationale. Of course, the, the key to this also was, um, I mean, who knew anything about Anne's time in France beyond the barest outlines? And I mean, if you, I mean, the most distinguished book on, and anyway, it's still a, an incredibly good book uh, on Anne Boleyn is a biography of Anne Boleyn is um, Eric oh, Ives' is, yes. um Life and Death of Anne hmm. Boleyn. Um, you know, I mean, it's an encyclopedic work. And I mean, you know, I mean, everyone takes off their hats um, to it. And Eric was a good friend of mine for yes. many years and is now greatly missed, missed. missed of course. Missed. But, um, you know, you look in his book and he's got exactly 10 pages on Anne in France, whereas, you know, we discovered that we could actually fill out the bulk of five chapters. Mm. And the key to that, the key to that was... Anne was with Queen Claude. She was uh, a demoiselle to Queen Claude, a maid of honour. Um, she was almost queen, the same as Queen Claude in terms of age. Um, the um, Wherever Queen Claude was, the demoiselles were there sitting on their cushions in the Chambre de Retrette or wherever they were. When the Queen went out, the demoiselles were there in, in Queen Claude's coronation. There was a special chariot for the, for the demoiselles. Um, with badges, with badges on the side. Uh, all this nonsense we debunked about Anne owning property in various places in France and being descended from an ancient Norman knight. That was all fakery, which was actually partly invented when her father, Thomas Boleyn, invented a fake mm -hmm. pedigree, um, you know, as was very common in the, in the 16th century, um, around, around 1530. Um, so once you've dismissed all that, what you needed to know was where was Queen Claude? Because there Anne would be. And of course, um, people hadn't worked out how to do that. And that's where we also found things hidden in, in, in plain sight, which were actually being published, you know, usually in the 19th century. Uh, and in fact, there's a French edition, because of course, um, it's a French source, uh, of the diaries of, of, of a man called Jean de Barillon, yeah. um, who was uh, basically the secretary of an important, important member of Francis's um, in a Privy, Privy Council. Uh, and um, he, he, what he does is he separates out the Queen's itinerary from the King's and says, you know, she was off to head, Francis went off, you know, to X, Y, and Z, but Claude stayed at, you know, uh, at sort of A and then went off to B, C, and D. Well, of course, once you've worked out Queen Claude's itinerary, and the itinerary, of course, in the um, in, in the catalogue of, of the Acts of Francis I in the French edition was, of course, of the French, that was, of course, of Francis's court, with occasional but erroneous um, um, notes about where Queen Claude might have been. The minute you've worked out where Claude was, then you realise, you know, where, um, where, where Anne was. And, of course, um, where Claude was often, Louise of Savoy was, and sometimes Marguerite mm. de Angoulême. And then you can work all these things out. So, I mean, when just to take the one example, when Claude, Louise um, um, and Marguerite went off to meet, um, to welcome back to France, uh, King Francis after Marignano, 
uh, when he came back from Italy and early in the rain. And they were very taken on their journey south um, by the um, various shrines of, um, you know, the alleged um, Mary Magdalene. And they went to um, St. Maximin, St. Maximin La Sainte-Bohme, uh, and they saw what was purporting to be the shrine of, of, of Mary Magdalene. And Louise was puzzled about it. Uh, you know, she was curious about this because of all the various, you know, frankly, you know, I mean, she was an extraordinarily um, sharp woman, um, dodgy miracle stories. She got. She asked her chaplain to investigate these, and it was too. It was too iconoclastic a work. It was too much for him to cope with. But he sent for his mentor, Jacques Lefebvre de Tarpel, who then gave seminars to the royal women. And of course, you know, it's no stretch of the imagination to see Anne sitting on her cushion, you know, listening in, listening in, not eavesdropping, but just listening in in attendance, uh, because just about everything that. Um, Jacques Lefebvre de Tartel and those around him in the circle de Meaux, Denis Brissonnet, the brother of Guillaume Brissonnet and so on, with whom Marguerite of Angoulême got so involved later on as a, as, a, as a protector. But of course, all these royal women were protecting these reformers. And you see exactly the strain of religion that Anne then basically makes her own uh, when she returns to 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 England and as queen. And But you can multiply those, you know, that's what we do in this book. That's why... I'll shut up because Julia's, Julia's, you know, Julia must come in on this. But <laughs> the the thing that we knew very early on, you know, I've always maintained when I did Thomas Beckett, when I did um, Thomas Lorne, his daughter Margaret, um, when I did Mary Queen of Scots, character is formed in childhood and adolescence, and the backstories are always so important in the lives of these people, so that we knew from the very beginning that we were going to have, if you like, Henry before Anne and, and Anne before Henry. Uh, and tell their back, tell their backstories, but we had no idea. And yeah. here's a here's a here's a secret for your, for your for your for your for your listeners. Even when we had produced, you know, the the um what's what's called in the trade the synopsis for this book, you know, the sort of if you like the pitch at the beginning, we had no idea of the extent to which we would be able to unpick Anne's backstory, no. but how important that would become in the no, in, we in, didn't. In the, in the book. We didn't. We knew we might find a few things, but we were amazed at how much actually emerged and how you could see uh, what happened to her in France being replicated in her ideas when she became queen. Uh, and, you know, that's incredibly important for Anne's whole psyche, really. I mean, so take, take one more example. In 1517 at Argentin, um, Anne was present when Francis yes. made his sister Marguerite of Angoulême Duke of Berry in her own right. Uh, the grant is written in such a way that basically she it has this in her absolute right. She can sit on the um, the French um, Conseil Privé, Privé Council. She can sit on the Secret Council. She is in fact um, um, becomes, if you like, legally a man in terms of you know that that's that's that sort of political yeah. political significance now when um we then you know realized it just dawned on us uh that um when henry makes um Anne marcus of pembroke which is a very very big move you know in um in um in in 1532 just before they go to uh, to to Calais and Boulogne for you know the the meeting the summit the the summit with um with 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 Francis, with Francis. Um, and is made Marquis of Pembroke in a ceremony that pretty much and in a grant that pretty much matches the um the grant the grant 
uh, to uh, Marguerite of Angoulême to be Duke, Duke of Berry and his Marquis of Pembroke in her own right. Yes. She has the lands. She's she can sit in the House of Lords. She's effectively a male uh, and can and, and I mean yeah. there's no evidence that she ever did sit in the House of Lords, no. but, but she she has that right. And it descend it, it's absolutely to her and it descends to her descendants. But the ceremony was on the very, very same day. Uh, as the ratific as the ratification of the big treaty, the big Anglo-French treaty, the Treaty of Mutual Aid between Henry and Francis, on the basis of which they went to Calais uh, and would have liked the marriage to actually take place in um, in, Ca- in Calais, but it was it was too late to arrange. Uh, but they go to Calais, and Francis recognizes, in, in um, to all intents and purposes, Anne. As the, as the future the future queen, he gives her expensive gifts. He treats her as as if she were royalty. Uh, he dances. He dances with her. It's on the strength of that that when they come back, Henry and Anne secretly marry. It's the moment that Anne decides she's now secure enough to actually sleep with Henry. Elizabeth is con- conceived, uh, and all of the things, and then for Anne's coronation and everything follows um, follows from that. And at this ceremony, and at and the ceremony of of Anne being made. Marcus of Pembroke, the French ambassador, is the guest of honour. Oh, wow. Um, that whole meeting and the consummation of the relationship and the acceptance by Francis, you know, that she's going to become queen, leads me on to that, the, the famous King's Nine manuscript, the Book of Hours, where you've got uh-huh. images. And I wondered whether that, you know, some women would say that, oh, I know them immediately, I fell pregnant and, you know, it's quick that you get that, the the various symptoms. And I wondered whether her choice of image of the Annunciation was her way of very quietly saying to Henry, by the way, darling, um, you've got an heir on the way. Mm-hmm. I, it's a possibility, but I think it's a little bit earlier, really. I think it's just, I think I this, think, the Book of Hours, we think, it, we think that's, we a, think bit that's earlier, a little bit earlier. But so there's, really, that, but there's yeah. absolutely no doubt, you see, you really touched on something here, though, because Anne does choose that page beneath yes. the depiction of the Annunciation. Yeah. And that, that, uh, for which, me, yeah, that was which, that which, was you know, it, it is very important. Yeah, which you absolutely. know, I mean, which is not what I can do for you, my which love. Of, which, of course, you know, in case listeners aren't you know, immediately familiar with this, is the angel Gabriel telling the Virgin Mary that she would bear a son. But that actually does two things. Yes, it shows that Anne is aware absolutely of this, but it also shows that at base, despite you know Henry's passion. Uh, and um, regardless of Anne's feelings for Henry, which is something you might want to ask us about a, a little bit later, because we can certainly touch on that. But it is a sort of rather strong indication that at the root, at least in in, in some proportion, this this relationship is deeply transactional. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anne is aware it's going to be a bargain. Yeah, She is going to have to deliver that sum. I mean, there's no getting away from it. But the fact of the matter is that that's only one element. One of the things we tried to get across in the book is that that's only one element. Usually that's thought to be the yeah. main element of the story. There's only this is only one element of the story because, you know, the thing that the thing that really hit us and we'd sort of realized this before um, we just fully worked, begun the research uh, and then it, it all fell into place during the research is that Henry and Anne's story meshes almost precisely with international affairs and in particular the shift away from an Anglo-Habsburg that's an alliance with 
um, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who's King of Spain. But, and Duke of Burgundy. But also Duke of Burgundy, which, again, for your listeners, basically means Burgundy doesn't mean Burgundy as, it, as you want to think today. Uh, in the middle of France, basically, it means what really is they, today is probably called Belgium. Uh, they are main trading partners, basically. Trading, Absolutely, exactly, exactly and that's so. very important. And, and of course, I know from having written the book on Thomas Gresham that oh. in, trade, in terms of trade, the economy yeah. and the credit markets, contrary to what everybody thinks, including me, who'd been teaching it before for 40 years before I ever turned to Thomas Gresham, um, is that London was actually an economic subset of Antwerp. The, the economic metropolis, the credit market metropolis, was Antwerp in Northern Europe. It was not London. It later became London, but that's that was really by sort of 1600, um, you know, by, I mean, the end of Elizabeth's reign and, you know, by, by that time, of course, also, I mean, um, the English had been thrown out of Antwerp anyway because of the um, you know, the revolt of the Netherlands and um, mm. the, the Catholic res mm. resurgence in um, particularly in what's now now Belgium, but that's a, that's a, that's a different story. Mm. And of course, but of course, that also links. You know, I mean, when you get to Anne's fall, um, the question has often been in debates between historians: who fired the you know who pulled the trigger. Was it Henry himself or was it Thomas Cromwell who actually sort of did it and Henry sort of complied and fell in fell in with this, which is all part of the long-standing 50-year-old debate that Geoffrey Elton started in Cambridge, you know, basically in the 1950s. You know, is it king or king or minister? So it's really quite to, to, to most readers wanting to know about the relationship, that's not the most important thing. But actually, to if you like professional historians, it's it's become it has become. Um, probably more important than it should have been. Well, we were able to resolve this uh, because it's 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 um, it, it, if you do it on a sort of day to day countdown basis, you can actually see how this panned out. But the point, the significance of the of Antwerp is that Cromwell, the thing that he best understood before he 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 was in he he worked for the Frescobaldi in in um, in Florence. In some capacity, some capacity in in his in his um, early early career, but he'd also worked for the Merchant Adventurers of London in Antwerp. Uh, in uh, in, in um, after he came back from Italy for a while before he came back to to England, and he fully understood. We know he fully understood the the, the if you like the, the credit and, and and trade and 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 cloth and um, wool markets because. He's actually engaging in that business to make that's his, if you like, what's now is called the side hustle. That's his side hustle. He's constantly um, involved in that until he gets, you know, totally embroiled with Wolsey and then Henry when he sort of stops. But he understands that market, so he knew he knew that the future, the future of the country, depended actually in terms of its economy on the on a Habsburg alliance and not a French alliance. The French were not giving you that, so it's one reason to explain why. You know, he wanted to actually why he did believe in that um, in that in that reversion. You know, um, but as I say, I mean, we thought. You know, I'd always thought, and what you think, Julia, but I'd always thought it odd because you know we've both been teaching, we've both taught this sort of stuff. I know what you're going to say. We always thought was here for about four years or so before Henry at least. Uh, well, I mean, he will have seen her in the court, but before he noticed her sufficiently to become uh, involved with her. But then if you look back and you realise that at the moment he becomes uh, involved with her and really notices her, 
is when earlier on we are having a more pro-French policy. He's fallen out with Charles. He's basically. fallen he's out fallen with, with Charles, Charles, and so there's France. He's been betrayed by Charles. Absolutely. Well, Charles was a master at that. Mm. Um, but there is Anne, and she is suddenly the epitome of everything French. Mm. Chic. Uh, attractive, um, you name it, there she is. Well, the French uh, ambassador, I mean, several French ambassadors say she's effectively France's representative in England in, in, yes. in, in, in terms in terms of in terms of you know, effect, well, effectiveness. Right. Money. There's a, a wonderful dispatch in which one of them says to uh, France, "This is great. We used to have to pay people in England to support us, and suddenly we've got Anne, and she's doing it for nothing." I mean, they were saving money hand over fist. What? What? Can we go back to Henry's formation of his personality? Because he, to mm -hmm. me, he seems incredibly mercurial, um, and he will flip flap. To, you know, but that seems to be later. But who? What? You know, what was it that basically created this very mercurial personality within a king of England? Was it his upbringing with, yes. within the nursery and his reading yeah. choices? I mean, you know, it seems to me that he seems to think of himself as a legendary King Arthur in some respects. Oh, I think he does. Uh, and certainly a Henry V. I mean, his very name calls him to battles in France, doesn't it? Yeah. But you're absolutely right. His relationship with his mother, Elizabeth of York, is central. I mean, Henry, as you know, is the spare, not the heir. Mm. And so he does not have to have his own household when he's basically a toddler or even earlier, as Arthur was whisked away. Mm. So he is uh, almost like the man, <clears throat> excuse me, the man about the house with Elizabeth of York, his two sisters, Margaret, who of course goes on to marry the King of Scotland, and Mary, his favourite sister, who marries Louis XII of France, uh, and then Henry's uh, favourite jousting companion. But from his mother, he gets uh, unconditional love. Mm. And he looks for the rest of his life for that sort of love, the love he wants, the love he needs. But I think you also have to remember that his father is the presence and what Henry sees at a very early age is how fragile a king's hold on power can be. Especially after I mean, Arthur's death. Yes. Especially after Arthur's death. Uh, when Henry VII takes the young Henry uh, very much into his, his orbit, particularly, of course, because Elizabeth has died by then. And Henry can see exactly how Henry VII rules. And needs, to, and needs to rule. Yes. Which is essentially through fear. Uh, and, um, I mean, once, once, once Arthur is dead and Henry really is the, the, the heir, yeah. and, of course, Elizabeth of York dies. Which he uh, never got over. Which he never got, which he never gets. And he says this. He, he actually does. says this himself. We're not sort of just in, we're not just he doing amateur psychology all. here. I mean, he says this, he he says this himself. Um, it's and, like a and, plaster and you and, rip it off and the sore is still there. And Henry VII keeps him, uh, not quite under lock and key, but in, in inside, you know, the recesses of the, the king's privy chamber. You know, he can't even really go out except, through, you know, through a door in which, you know, he's basically watched and his movements are, re are reported. So security is the security 
uh, which is enforced uh, as much through fiscal as, as, as if you like, more conventional um, enforcement methods uh, is um, is very, very, yes. is very, very clear. Uh, and uh, Henry, the thing about Henry's psychology is know, that you've you, got to remember that early bit. Yes, yes. When he goes into the tower. Yes. He's about three years old and he's whisked off by during his mother during rebellion. a rebellion into the safety of the Tower of London. For a little boy, he's going to remember it. A little while later, he is paraded through the streets on a great war horse. He is the Duke of York, and they want to show him to the people. And that's important. I mean, a war horse is a massive beast, mm. gorgeous creature. We're not talking Shetland pony. And this little boy managed that horse and enjoyed it. Uh, and I think all of those things come together for Henry. And don't forget that when he takes over as king, yeah, he wants to be popular, but he soon polishes off the very unpopular Empson and Dudley, Henry VII's loyal servants, loyal servants, doing the king's business. But he doesn't polish them off straight away. He waits for a little while to see if there's information that can be got from them, that sort of thing. Then when he's exhausted all that avenue, oh, chop him. And then the Duke of Buckingham in 1521. And with the Duke of Buckingham, he coaches witnesses. Henry gets what he wants. But he never feels entirely secure. That's it's the strange, strange thing. The, the, in some ways, the king that would have been the most secure, you know, arguably the richest king of England, somehow is psychologically insecure inside. And yes. and and the opposition to Anne is not popular. Catherine of Aragon had been extremely popular. Anne was not was not really popular in the general sense of that word. Uh, and um and and of course opposition to Henry's break with Rome. Yes. Um, you know, is significant. Uh, and um, this, for Henry, then obedience becomes the most important thing. Obedience to the king. Yes. Uh, control. Everyone. Control. You know. I mean, you can't have a you can't have a trial that Henry's interested in without him, if you like, rigging it and knowing or getting someone to rig it. And it's knowing, and someone knowing else to rig he it. Knows the, he knows the result before it, it's uh, it, 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 it's yes. done. But he is quite hands-on. I mean, it, it, I mean Elizabeth, I mean, yeah. Anne's daughter Elizabeth, when she was queen, she wanted things rigged or she wanted things done. I mean, but she'd always wanted somebody else to do it. You know, when when I'm doing, um, you know, Litfest talks on, um, um, on, on Elizabeth, it was actually your idea. You know, I often call her Macavity, the cat who's never there. You know, I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's, she, she, she an awkward decision. She makes sure that yeah. somebody else um, take actually is seen publicly to take it, even though mm -hmm. they've been told, you know, pretty much, or it's been made clear to them exactly what that person is expected to do. Um, I mean, she doesn't even, she does, she is, she is. Um, she is persuaded to sign the warrant for Mary, Queen of Scots's execution because um, Lord Burley, William Cecil, tells her that effectively the Spanish Armada's mm. landed a year early in Wales. It's the only way he can get her to actually sign it. And she should double her bodyguards at Windsor Castle because, you know, the Spanish are coming, which is an absolute fabrication. And, 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 and Burley and Walsingham invent or reinvent an old plot uh, as a new plot, you know, and frighten the life out of her. And she does sign it. But of course, she the next day she recalls it. The next day she recalls it. And, and then she tells and then she tells um her secretary, William Davidson, not to send it until uh, not to actually let it out of his hands or to send it until she's seen him again and talked to him again about it, and then does nothing. 
Well, of course, then the then the sort of sixty thousand dollar question is, um, you know, should she? Does she actually know that really he's going to send it? And as that actually happens, Burley and Walsingham are going to send it and tell her afterwards. Um, and then she can disclaim all responsibility for it. Or does she really not want to send it? And it's a sort of combination of the two. And, you know, people people can mm-hmm. debate that. And then she does it in an episode that no one knows very much about, which I wrote about in my Elizabeth of Forgotten Years in, in um, 2015, 2016. She does the same sort of thing with Essex. You know, she tells... Mm. Um, you know, Essex, that um, who's about to be put on trial, and she tells, you know, her secretary, actually, I don't think this is a good idea yet. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this, but uh, don't do anything. So, of course, you know, he immediately he knows he's got to do something. Yeah. And sort of Elizabeth isn't, but doesn't she doesn't take any blame. She never takes blame, does she? No. For, well, Henry doesn't. Does uh, if, she, if she can. If no, she can, Henry she never can does. It. His hands are. Well, although Henry, no. Henry, Henry, Henry has no understanding of blame. I mean, blame no. is. Blame, no, blame. No, that's other people. That's for that's for other people. Yeah. But does that like does that come from you know the the people he had around him from childhood like Norris and 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 uh, Brereton and people? Yeah. Did they actually let him win? So he never oh, learned to take responsibility. I don't think not they all, were. I don't think they were necessarily. They weren't all there when he was a child. But he did. But he did have. But I mean, but I mean, the early days. He does have friends who were there. I mean, like Anthony Brown is there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Fitzwilliam's there from the beginning. I mean, there's a whole string of people that actually are there um, from from the beginning. Um, I mean, we know. We actually know. It's quite interesting. Actually, we know from both the surviving. Henry Privy Purse accounts. They're not there for all the years, but they are there for some crucial years, including actually during Henry Nan's courtship, which is incredibly useful, uh, or for some of that time. But also there are other, I mean, the, the, the main British source that we used for this um, that was incredibly useful and is almost never looked at are warrants for yes. payments, mm, yes. warrants for financial payments uh, in in various accounts and and and, and payment books and, and and all of this stuff, uh, and actually you can see Henry's um, losses at bowls yeah. and cards and yes. dice and 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 all that. Yes. He was not good at. There was a, Pope Julius's game. He was definitely bad at. He always he lost at that. Losing lost it. Got but, loads of money. But, but, but he seemed to be quite happy about. I think it was a good time. I think it was a convention that if you know you lost. If you lost your mates, you know, on the whole, and even in jousting, I think he, you know, I think that was actually, yeah, maybe he sort he of accepted, accepted that he because, did. because it, was, it was sport, although it could turn, I, I it could turn could quite turn nasty. It could, more nasty. When Charles Brandon knocked him off his horse he and, like and, it, and it looked like Henry was going to die, that was not good. And it happened, and of course it happened again later. I mean, but, but um, no, I mean, but in terms of the politics of this, I mean, it's absolutely... He he absolutely he has to have control. Um, that's absolutely you know. I mean, it's the it's the. Well, you could mention Lord risk. Dacre, for example. He got he was the, the one, one who got, off, who got the one away. Got yeah, didn't when yeah. it comes to it. He got away in the sense that his head and the rest of his body remained attached. And he was acquitted. By and his he's peers. been acquitted Just. by his peers. But the moment he was acquitted, he was rearrested uh, and, and forced to pay. An, an, enorm- an enormous fine, enormous fine, uh, and he was various which, 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 which would have been exactly Henry the Seventh. Absolutely, Henry the Seventh. And and also, he was told he could only go within so many miles of you know, London. Yeah. And then later, that was slightly relaxed. Uh, but um, I mean, that's what happened. Yes. I and mean, even if you there's got, a vengeful away with something, there was a vengefulness. Look at look at Thomas Wyatt. Look at Thomas Wyatt. Well, I was going to ask you about, oh, uh, about one I of mean, his poems. I mean, <laughs> I mean yes, I mean, do do. Well, I was. Well, what I was going to say was, 
that later later on, I mean, we'll talk about in a minute perhaps what um, um, we think about um, Wyatt's relationship with Anne and, and, and Henry and all of that. But later on, long after Anne's death, Wyatt was still used as an ambassador. And there's one occasion when he where he's denounced uh, by Edmund Bonner and sent to the tower yet again. Uh, um, and he's sort of languishing in the tower. Uh, and he's actually acquitted by Henry. Um, he's actually acquitted almost without a mark on his, um, you know, on his, on his sort of, on his card, on his character. Excuse me, but but as, but, as a, but as a somehow as a sort of as a, as, as 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 a surrogate punishment, um, you know, for something that the king himself admits that Wyatt hasn't really committed, um, he is told that he has to go back to his wife, whom he left, you know, as part of the and loathed. He left yes. and live with her and live with her yes. and give up his and give up um, his, um, his mistress, mistress who the, he did Elizabeth Darrow, whom whom he loved and who with whom he'd you know fathered a child. Uh, and uh, and who is living at um, Allington Castle as a sort of as a, sh a chatelaine. Um, so it's a particularly nasty. That's there is a, particularly a nasty, nasty side. side to him. It's frightfully. There's, there's, there's two things here. There's the the size of the fines because some of them are astronomic. Yeah. Um, mm. Is this a way of actually filling the royal coffers as well, um, mm. keeping control on those those courtiers who who Henry might see or. Woolsey or more or Cromwell might see become a challenge to to their authority. Perhaps there is an element of that. Well, it's, I it's, mean, it's, certainly with somebody like Buckingham, the only man in in England who paid fourpence for a haircut, which was a phenomenal amount of money in those days. Uh, but I think it's more the Henry the Seventh principle. You can't have a police state without police. Yeah. That yeah. is what Hilary Mantel's little aphorisms, and it's correct, and it's and it's Absolutely. correct. But there are other ways of doing it, yes. um, which amount to more or less the same thing. Um, and um, Henry, there's a, there was a very there was a very um, there was a very good article, wasn't there? I think it was by Jack Lander about Henry, yes. Sons, you know, donkey's years ago. Yeah, uh, and it was called something like you know, bonds, coercion, and fear. You know, Henry the Seventh, he bound up um, those he suspected, or even even friends. Um, you know, just people, in, just nobles and, you know, leading gentlemen in, in, in general into financial bonds, um, which required them to be of good behaviour. Uh, and if they, if the king thought, you know, their behaviour wasn't up to speed, in his opinion, there was no litigation. The bonds were simply forfeit and the debt collectors came round. Uh, wow. and, um, you know, I mean, Empson and Dudley's chaps came round, you know, and um, basically that was it. You had to pay up. So it was it was the threat of financial ruin mm. that 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 infor enforced obedience. And then that certainly mm. is what Henry the yes. Eighth has. has, um, has I think he's up. inherited that. But, but with Anne, I mean, I think, mm, I, think I think we shouldn't let this just fall out of sight. With Anne, there's a little bit something a little bit different. I mean, Henry has married Catherine of Aragon. Essentially, on a teenage impulse. Except uh, it's, it's not so dark. It's, except it's she's not so there. dark. She's there. She's available. She the diary. The diary's yeah. good. She she's she's royal. Um, uh, but of course, another reason is that he's been trained. Henry has been trained by his father mm -hmm. that the dynasty is not secure until the heir mm -hmm. has himself married and produced a male wow. heir. Uh, and so, you know, when Henry says that. 
later or obviously, obviously of course when he wants mm. a divorce catching when he says that well he was pushed into it by dad you know or indeed he said this at the time at the time he said uh, one occasion he was it was because dad wanted him to do this and the treaties were all set up and he just had to basically go through this uh again oh, it was henry the seventh's yeah. deathbed wish uh, apparently. Well, apparently it was henry oh, says, apparently. apparently apparently um, um, but uh, but but also he uh, on another occasion he says well he was just so desperately in love with with yes. with Catherine that you know he just absolutely had to uh, marry well leave leave aside the motivation apart but this is this is um this is a very fast um, wedding uh, they're both very young they don't really know each other um, that with that will um, and basically um, I mean it, it does begin very well because of course mm. Catherine does have a male heir she does have a son Henry quickly. in 1511 Le- who lives just a few weeks and, yes, then, and, then, and then dies and of course I mean of course naturally like Francis the first whose first two children with between Claude were daughters he was absolutely fine with that I mean Henry was fine with Anne with Elizabeth yes. the first time around but of course it's the it's the third time around that Francis got shirty yeah. and of course it was after um <laughs> one daughter one stillbirth stroke miscarriage with with Anne that that, that Henry turns sort of shirty wow. um and then you know the things go think 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 things things go wrong but but the key thing about Anne is also that it's not just that she's she's French even that she is chic that she seems to offer everything that he wants for a middle-aged man going through some sort of you know, crisis and is looking for for an heir um it's that Anne by virtue of her French connections and passion for all things French, is personally invested in his enterprise. Yes, it's a joint. It's a joint thing. enterprise at a point when he has resolved, and Woolsey, on <laughs> Woolsey's advice, he has resolved that he's making this absolutely cosmic um, sort of reversion um, from the normal Anglo-Burgundian alliance, the alliance with the Habsburgs, with Charles, with Charles to a, a, a pro-French alliance, uh, but she is invested in his enterprise. And the the if we, you know, when we started this book, the one thing we decided um, that we wouldn't do is get bogged down in the details. Huh? Of course, what happens, as happens you to can. every author on this, um, you get very deeply involved in the divorce. But in fact, that paid handsome dividends because we discovered that as with Louise of Savoy, in yes. France, as with uh, Marguerite of Angoulême, for some of the some of the time, uh, Anne was allowed to to or I was able to uh, conduct an independent diplomacy on the divorce, separately from what Henry and in parallel with what Henry was doing. And Henry often said, well, a couple of times anyway, mm. for sure, which fully documented when when. Uh, um, Henry's ambassadors, when the English ambassadors came back, or the envoys to Rome came back um, to London, Henry said, "Go and see Anne first. You know, she's. You know, you want to see her first about this, and 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 see what she then and I'll she see, was, and if, see her afterwards." Yeah. And so, from, when Francis Bryan is sent on a mission to a, a mission, Anne's cousin sent on a mission to Rome, he has expressed instructions. To, to write independently to Anne and keep her fully yes. fully briefed. And it was Brian, wasn't it, who said to Henry at one point, do you remember, that wonderful bit about, um, unfortunately, things haven't gone quite the way we wanted. Uh, basically, will you tell Anne? Uh, I'm, I'm, too, I'm, too I'm too scared. I'm too scared. It's yeah. absolutely priceless. Um, I suppose... Come- yeah, when sorry. it comes to, to her, I'm just looking at the, I'm conscious of the time. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, one of the things being, it's her court's so different from Catherine's. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. and yes. she has so much power. 
you know, she's she's people are going to her like as you say, Brian and and you know, mm. go and see her first. And how was it that Henry was turned completely against her? Was this Cromwell seeing her as a was it over the dissolution money or was that just a a, a fop? And actually, what he saw was that she was a threat to his Cromwell's own authority. I think there's a lot of a lot of things there. Uh, There's an intermediate by, stage, isn't there? Yeah, the intermediate stage, of course, is that uh, Anne is still heavily involved with policy, but up towards the social uh, welfare type uh, angle. Because there's a sea change once once, uh, yes. she, once Henry this has is, actually this married is her. It it's the difference between being you you've achieved something when there's a joint enterprise the two are as one, but once they're married and he's got her, he's got her. Then, uh, then, it's, then it's a slightly so. different thing, um, and her court is based, and I think this is very important actually. It's very much based on French lines. Don't forget within mm. her chamber. Um, Normally, within the Queen's side of the court, because the King and the Queen had different sides to the court, they each had their own courts and their own officials, of course. The Queen's side had always been largely female. I'm not saying there wouldn't be a man. And some occasionally male, some male, officials. male officials or there could be relatives, that sort of thing. But with Anne, it was far more of an intermingling of the sexes. On French lines. On French lines. Absolutely. And there would be what they call pastimes, dancing, etc., etc. Um, Flirting. Uh, yeah. Usually harmless, not always. Um, but you have to remember that Anne did not choose the women around her. She could choose some of them. And she did. But there were others who were there because they were, if you like, career courtiers or they were there because their husbands were very important within Henry's uh, own privy chamber or had official posts like Mary Kingston, who was married to the constable of the tower, Sir William Kingston. Um, she didn't have control over these women, and many of them had links that went back to Catherine. And if you like, they were enemies. Mm. She had to have one of the aunts, Anne seems to have aunts all over the show, um, but she has one particular one, uh, lady, a, a Lady Boleyn, whom she loathes. Um, it's infuriating, actually, because we tried desperately hard to try and find out why she loathed her, and we never did. Uh, but something must have happened. And she was there, and Anne loathed her. She was there at the uh, in the tower, of course, with Anne guarding her. Guarding her. Um, but these women, if you like, were watching everything. And they saw when she was happy, when she was sad. They saw when she had a period. Uh, and so she wasn't pregnant. And so once Henry starts to wobble a little, some of these women are very happy to tell tales because some of the things that went on in that privy chamber sailed close to the wind. Or could be twisted. Could be twisted. That's the whole point. Yeah, good point. Could be twisted. Um, because I don't think, I think Anne just didn't keep sufficient control. Discipline. Discipline. That's right. Um, she did in some areas, but largely on this sort of thing, she took her eye off the ball. Well, there were sex scandals in, Fran in France. Yes. Look at the court of Mary, Queen of Scots. Yes. You know, Rizzio's in and out of the Privy Chamber. 
you know, regardless of whether or not you think he was bisexual, which I actually I do think he was, um, um, playing with the women and you know in, engaged in all their sports and other men sort of going in in and out, and it was very easy out of those that yes. sort of situation to create a sex scandal. That's which right. Nothing like what had ever happened in Catherine's household, no. which was no. a sort of a model a model of decor- decorum. And it doesn't happen again. And it never happens again when Henrietta Maria became Charles the First Queen. It doesn't happen there Even because she's a French one, of, one, one of the one of the most important of um if you like of Charles's sort of policies um as the Stuart historians will tell you is this idea that the court was going to be a center of high no high morals and good behavior good behavior in reaction to what had happened at That's James, right. James the first uh, I mean court. I think with regard to Cromwell which was part of your question yes. um I don't I think it, people tend to think that either Anne and Cromwell were at daggers drawn from the beginning or they were bosom buddies. And it's it's neither, really. Mm. Um, they could work together on certain issues, you know, translations of the, the Bible, really. It's, it's, that it's, sort it's of about thing. the only one, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, but does he see her as a rival? Um, he doesn't really rise up until after her death, it's true. But a rival could possibly be, uh, and this we sort of did... Uh, pose in the book, uh, Anne's brother, George. George has been neglected. Mm. If you look at so many books, he's dismissed as a, oh, I don't know, a pale shadow of his sister. And I think that is perhaps to underestimate him. A messenger boy. Um, yeah, he's more than a messenger boy. He goes on six, six missions six to France. Six missions to France. Okay. But he also, you know, he's also arguing for the royal supremacy at, at the yes. 31 yes. Absolutely. And even more to the point, he and Anne um, reached the point where they think the solution to the, you know, essentially the problems and indeed the right thing to do, if you like, um, is for Francis to break with Rome like Henry. Mm. And this is something that Francis, particularly after yeah. the autumn of 1534, you know, with them, um, if you like, Protestant insurgents in France, is not going to do. No. Francis retrenches on his earlier support uh, for um, the French the reformers. reformers and the French royal women, Marguerite of uh, um, Marguerite Angoulême. Of, of, of Angoulême, has to has to ha- she has to pull back. Yes, uh, uh, also um, and. Um, you know that's a, yeah. a sea change, a sea change in um, yes. in in in, in France. Yes. But I mean, Julia is absolutely right that I mean, you know, it's not for us to blow our own, you know, sort of horn on on this. But we are probably the only authors who have ever attempted to reconstruct the women in Anne's privy chamber, mm-hmm. uh, and there are essentially three groups. Yeah, and and the career courtiers who are basically Catherine, Catherine's former courtiers, and many of and, whom and, lied into Jacqueline, and, 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 and 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 if truth be told, and enemies. Um, the two of the most important of them became her custodians of the, the four women custodians in the in, in 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 the in the in the tower. Then there are Anne's supporters, Mary Howard, Mary Shelton, you know, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch a bunch of people there. And I mean, Mary Howard is very important. I mean, she's married to um, she's the Duke of Norfolk's daughter, and she's married to Henry Fitzroy, Henry's illegitimate son. Um, the Earl of the Earl, the Earl of Richmond, and then there, if you like, there are Lovely. people there are people that are sort of there and. Um, a sort of a, um, a bit of a bit of bit of a sort of a mixture like Marjorie Horseman. Now Marjorie Horseman, who was also drawn, many of these people are drawn by Holbein. Yes. Uh, and Marjorie Horseman, it, you would be better known to your listeners as um, Lady Lister. Lady, Lady Lister. 
um, because she um, she married um, later 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 yeah. on Sir Michael Sir Michael, Sir Michael Lister, um, but she was initially quite close to Anne. Uh, and, um, for example, Lady Lyle in Calais got quite a lot of her information about what, what Anne was doing and from, you know, from um, Marjorie Horseman. But six to eight months before Anne's fall, when Marjorie Horseman wants something, she asks Cromwell and mm. not Anne. Because Cromwell, Cromwell's, Cromwell begins as Henry's parliamentary manager. It's absolute nonsense to think. And, I mean, no one probably has thought for 20, 25 years that... Um, as Geoffrey Elton used to think, that the minute Wolsey was down, Cromwell, you know, yeah. sort of stepped in after some sort of magical interview as okay. with Henry as described by by Cavendish, which is sort of has grains of truth, but is too is too, the lines are too strong. He becomes in as the parliamentary manager, then he becomes you know the master of the jewels and this, which means not just he's looking after jewels, but he's got tons of he's got the cash, he's got much of the cash. Uh, and that's an, mm. obviously a very important mm. role to sort of have to to, to play. He and mm. Norris, as um, uh, uh, chief gentleman of the Privy Chamber, have, have, have uh, between them have the have the cash. Mm. And then Cromwell gets these bigger ambitions, and then he gets this commission to inspect the monasteries, mm. uh, and in, in order to do a census of their value and the stand the, the the moral standards in the monasteries. In connection with which he is given a wet stamp of the king's signature, mm. and he can start stamping letters that he has ghostwritten for Henry with the king's signature, mm. which gives him. He develops oceanic ambitions. <laughs> he is absolutely to every fibre of his body pro-imperial. Uh, he is. Um, he 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 meets um, Charles V's um, ambassador Eustace Chapuis, um, and um, some of those meetings are very secret. Um, uh, I think something that no one has ever really sort of um, noticed before. He keeps a painting of Charles V uh, in his house at the Austin Friars, where interestingly there isn't one of Henry. Uh, and um, Charles V writes him a letter thanking him for everything that he's done uh, for him, which uh, is a letter that Cromwell makes jolly sure he doesn't um, show to Henry, and Henry doesn't Henry doesn't find out about. It. And I mean, I'm not we don't want to make too much of this, but but everything about Cromwell's um, sort of cultural basis and understanding, particularly of trade and the economy and the credit markets, is that you're better off with a Habsburg a pro Habsburg alliance than you are with a French yes. alliance, and you have to pick the one or the. Or, or the other, or, or the other, right. uh, and um, I mean, in terms of Anne's fall, um, because Francis's support is starting to, to 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 wane a bit, and of course, a crucial thing here in the part of the story in the European context is that um, Clement the Seventh, mm-hmm. um, and then la- and then later um, Paul the Third um, after Clement Clement's death, um, Clement first excommunicates Henry. Uh, and Paul I declares him deprived of his kingdom and a heretic and a schismatic. Now, the crucial thing to understand about those sentences is that they are not um, officially... They, Clement's sentence is sort of... It's, it's convenient to say it was suspended, and it was suspended at French pressure. The French defended Henry from this, uh, and it was not it was not published officially, and it was not therefore enforced. Um, Paul's sentence... 
Um, whether it was suspended or not is something that somebody needs to go to the Vatican to absolutely identify, but it was not published. It was issued, but it was not, that means it was circulated in the royal courts, but it was not actually officially published, which means but it it's was, there. wasn't actually um, sort of, it wasn't actually in, at that minute enforceable. But then suddenly, suddenly, in, in April 1536, uh, at the beginning of 1536, Catherine dies. Um, and has the um, the, the male um, fetus, which of about three and a half months, which is basically a mis miscarriage. Um, Henry is not happy about this. I mean, we all know that's all the familiar part of the story. But what people don't seem to um, latch on to is that Henry then opens a bidding war between Charles and Francis, who will give me the most in return for my support. And that bidding war is going on through the whole of the spring, and it's still going on in April. What Cromwell wants is it for it to end in favour of Charles and not of Francis, and we can show exactly how he's doing that and on what dates things are happening. Um, and then suddenly, suddenly, because uh, um, it often took a long time for the messengers to arrive, a dispatch arrives from Richard Pate, who is um, Henry's ambassador to Charles, and he is just approaching Rome because Charles is marching from the south of Italy at that moment up towards Rome. And Pate, in the, in the course of this dispatch, Pate tells Henry that Ch not only is Charles thinking of actually public, getting published and enforcing uh, the decree of excommunication and deprivation against Henry, but that for the first time, the French, the French agents in Rome are showing yes. no objection. Quite. And that I think we think that scares the life out of Henry. Uh, uh, but even even at the last minute, he's wavering. He's wavering, but he's wavering. he's thinking he's going to go with Charles. But he needs a basically he needs a kick up the backside to actually get him to actually make the final choice. And that's when Cromwell produces this evidence of sexual misdoing in the yeah. Queen's privy chamber. We should just Put point Put out that as uh, an ally as a relationship with uh, Charles did start to develop, it didn't automatically mean. That Anne would have to go. Yes, that's Charles. It. I think that's quite yes, important. Yes, it is, yes. Charles was actually prepared at one point because Catherine's dead now um, to accept Anne as queen, providing Catherine's daughter Mary as the acknowledged heir to the throne. But the one thing you can say about Anne is no way would she have agreed to that. Anne has been brought up to be part of the Berlin dynasty. She is a dynast just as much as Henry is. She would not cut out Elizabeth willingly. So in a way, there's a sort of bizarre symmetry. Yeah, there's there's a, a bizarre symmetry. Because of course, the film, um, and my recollection, the film Anne of the Thousand, Thousand Days, Days, it has a, which has a sort of nonsense, sort of fictional end, but it actually ends with the absolutely key reason that Anne, you know, won't, yeah. won't, you know, um, basically settle, go off to a nunnery or whatever it is that oh, Elizabeth Elizabeth has to succeed. Yeah, uh, and so for Anne, that's the that's the deal. That's that's, that's the deal breaker. Charles, I have to say would prefer Anne to go. Of course. But if it means he can but... clinch, clinch the deal with, with, with Henry, yeah. um, he will let her stay under these conditions that she has to give up her reforming inclinations and stop basically pushing um, you know, her Lefebvreist, her French reform ideas, her, mm. if you like, Protestant ideas. Uh, and also she has to give up and accept that Elizabeth is not, not going to succeed and it's going to be Catherine's daughter, Mary, and Anne would never agree to that. No. And so she has to... So she has to. So she has She's to go, go, which I think is rather a rather different um, 
a rather different spin. Well, not a spin. I mean, it's in the documents. It's a rather different take on these things than you sort of normally yes. no- normally get. Yeah. Gosh, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, one last question. Yes. Do you think she actually loved Henry? <laughs> we think that Henry loved her at the beginning. Yes. Enormously. You can't get away from that. But we were really fascinated by what was written in those prayer books. And if you actually look at the two messages, I think you've got your answer. Henry's, and I'm actually going to read it out because I don't know it off by heart and I should learn it off by heart, but I haven't, I confess. But Henry's, which was written in French, said, if you remember my love in your prayers as strongly as I adore you, I shall hardly be forgotten, for I am yours, Henry R., always. That sounds like love to me. It does sound like love. I think we'll go with that. And we've got the 17 love letters. Oh, 17 love letters, of course. But Anne's reply, written in English, under the Annunciation picture, is, I think, quite telling. Well, we thought so anyway. By daily proof, you shall me find to be to you both loving and kind. Very, there's no passion there. It's very much the sort of thing that a woman would say in an arranged marriage with her husband. A dutiful wife. A dutiful wife. The sort of of thing she'd say on her wedding day when she promises to love, love, serve and obey. Because, of course, then, Then unlike that, it was love, serve and obey, not love, honour and and, and, And and, obey. obey. So do we think that she loved him? We think she came to, to... uh, have a deep affection. Have a deep affection. And yes. respect and gratitude. Yes. yes, yes. But love, no, probably not. Not unconditional, passionate, not the sort total, of love you know, sort want. of over the moon type um, no. love. Um, and I think, yes, yes, I think I'm sure. I, I think and that's, that's true. I, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel that's right. And of course, um, I mean, she did make jokes. I mean, it's clear. She, yes. It's clear. It's absolutely clear to us. I mean, again, the evidence is complex and it's all layered in the book. Yeah. Uh, but um, we are persuaded that she had indeed told her sister-in-law, uh, Jane Parker, yeah. uh, who married okay. George, George Berlin, that Henry was no good in bed. He had neither puissance nor vertu, which sort of means basically vigour and um, you know mm. staying power. And uh, they did joke about his poems uh, they and did his, joke about songs. his poems and his songs. Uh, and if you were madly in love with somebody, you probably wouldn't do that. And it was indiscreet. It was very indiscreet. But Anne, if you believe, if you believe, there's um again, it's but, it's all it's, it's all in the book. Um, <laughs> there is a very important player on the, uh, if you like, or observer on the edge of the scene. Um, called Lancelot de Cole. Mm. Now, I'm not talking, uh, you know, exclusively here about this, 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 like this poem, the history of Anne Boleyn. I'm thinking also of the notes which we discovered from him in the Bibliothèque Nationale, yeah. uh, which enable you to do um, um, a little bit of sort of cross-checking and collating. Now, what de Cole says is that at her trial. And did confess that she had one fault in relation to Henry and that she had um, um, suffered at times from jealousy. Because she's always uh, vulnerable, don't but, forget. Uh, yes. She's she's vulnerable. Her position is vulnerable and it becomes yeah. increasingly. She had so, so when Henry looked at another woman, 
which yes. occasionally he did. Yes, not that. Uh, and not necessarily uh, more than um, innocently. I mean, no. you know, or she just took it the wrong way. Um, and you know, that needs all. I mean, we've unpicked all this, but mm. it's uh, this isn't the moment to 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 explore it in detail. But she 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 did admit. Uh, according to um, De Carl's account, that she had um, she had suffered bouts of, of jealousy, and for that she was truly sorry. Uh, and um, I think also, I mean, I think one of the things which actually, funnily enough, right at the end when we were just handing in the uh, yeah. handing in this book to the publisher, um, that we've got a passage in um, in which we say that also it may well be that the the almost emotive fury of Anne's reaction to her old elder sister Mary's. Uh, marriage below status marriage to yes. William Stafford. I mean, Mary Boleyn does the exactly what Boleyns are brought up not to do. Yeah, she, marries up, down. She, she marries she, down. She she'd married she'd married well the first time, but now she marries down a humble William Stafford. Um, and Anne was absolutely furious about yes. this so much to the to the point that Mary Boleyn writes to Cromwell. Actually, can you get me off the hook here, please? Get Henry. I can't. I know you can't do it, but please get Henry to intercede with Anne. You know, so that I can be sort of brought back into the fold. Um, and Cromwell thinks it's probably too much even for him to manage <laughs> to, to pull that pull that pull that pull that one off. And uh, I do wonder. I mean, I did wonder. I know and we talked about this a it's lot. A whether there was no element of sexual jealousy there on Anne's part that Mary Boleyn was getting what she wanted. Uh, out of William Stafford, and she wasn't getting, you know, um, really quite what she well, wanted. This is it. She of, probably never thought what it would be actually like to live that's what we on say. a day-to-day basis with thought. Henry. But then as a, as a woman in her position brought up to marry yeah. up, well, you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't. No, um, it's true. You know, you it's wouldn't. true, so, true. So that's where, that's where this question is intertangled with the different expectations which, you know, 21st century readers have about romantic love with 16th century expectations yeah. about love and um, marriage. Yes. But I have they, to say that this, it it has film or documentary written all over it. <laughs> Are there any plans? Not that we really the, know of that. To, nothing concrete. There's nothing concrete. All right, okay. There have, been, there, have been, there have been conversations, <laughs> there but, have been which, conversations. Are on, which, are, which are ongoing. Right, excellent. Well, Remember, um, with Mary Queen of Scots, it took me 14 years to get it moving onto the, <laughs> onto the, big, onto the big screen. Though it did, it did happen. It it did ha happen. Once it happened, it happened fast. And it, doesn't, but... and it doesn't happen because you pitch for it. It happens because it, it does happen. happen. Somebody so, just finds yeah. the book. Well, Hunting the Falcon will be published in the UK on the 14th of September. And... Um, and in the US, I believe it's been pushed back to the 24th of October. I know it's October, uh, but I... I, 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 I we, thought, we, we thought it was the 17th, but... but um, we don't yeah, know no, I've, I've been told it's the 24th. Oh, right. I believe it's also available for pre-order. Pre yeah. And my recommendation is to anybody listening to this podcast is go out and order. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing you in Southwark on the, on the 5th. Lovely. Um, we'll see you there. We'll see you there. Yes, see you there. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fabulous talk. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.